0: That is outside the Israeli embassy in London, two days ago. Beautiful. That is, that is the scene of solidarity that we need to see at every level, I think. But uh, today we are having a discussion on dialectical materialism, and we're going to tie that into the Black Panther Party and why this is important today. I'm your host and comrade, Rob, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Ah, Patricia. Sure
0: so. Oh, that's, that's all you're gonna do?
1: That's all. Okay, Hi, welcome.
2: Rob, keep this in, future Rob, keep all of this in. Hi, everybody. I don't know why I waved at the screen when probably a majority of you are gonna hear this and hear my weird, slightly, I promise you this isn't, in fact, Hiccup from how to train a dragon speaking. This is Don Hughes uh, with the We Are Many podcast. Um, Right now on the screen, for those of you watching this in the future, you're seeing our Patreon is live. Follow the link. If you can donate, awesome. If you can't, awesome. If you're Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, guys. I, I keep telling you, you know, the videotapes will stop, the, the harassing phone calls, the 3am the standing in the bushes outside of your house, the floating around your new mega yacht in a SEAL costume, a poorly made SEAL costume with no pants. Most of it will stop. All you got to do is donate one time. Everybody else, yeah, you're free of these horrible, horrible experiences. Be proud of that. Indeed. Had to get
0: in there. So, um, I guess we can just jump right in. I feel like a good place to start is, like, the dictionary definition of dialectical materialism. So... We're we're in this case, we're talking about Britannica, Um, but the dialectical materialism is a philosophical approach to reality derived from the writings of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. For Marx and Engels, materialism meant that the material world, perceptible to the senses, has objective reality independent of mind or spirit. They did not deny the reality of mental or spiritual processes, but affirmed that ideas could arise, therefore, only as products and reflections of material conditions. Marx and Engels understood materialism as the opposite of idealism, by which they meant any theory that treats matter as dependent on mind or spirit, or mind or spirit as capable of existing independently of matter. For them, the materialist and idealist views were irreconcilably opposed throughout the historical development of philosophy. They adopted a a thoroughgoing materialist approach, holding that any attempt to combine or reconcile materialism with idealism must result in confusion and inconsistency. Um, So they, they go a little bit into about how the conception of dialectic owes a lot to Hegel Um, Marx and Engels I believe both studied Hegel and he kind of put dialectics into words and what Marx and Engels did was combined the Hegelian dialectics with their concept of the uh, material reality therefore we get dialectical materialism um so then we're going to go to the glossary at marxist.org. Um, Dialectical materialism is a way of understanding reality, whether thoughts, emotions, or the material world. Simply stated, this methodology is the combination of dialectics and materialism. The materialist dialectic is the theoretical foundation of Marxism, while being communist is the praxis or the practice of Marxism. Uh, Engels said in Dialectics of Nature, it is an eternal cycle in which matter moves, a cycle that certainly only completes its orbit in periods of time for which our terrestrial year is no adequate measure. <clears throat> a cycle in which the time of highest development, the time of organic life, and still more that of the life of being conscious of nature and of themselves, just as narrowly restricted as the space in which life and self-conscious- self-consciousness come into operation. A cycle in which every finite mode of existence of matter, whether it be sun or nebular vapor, single animal or genus of animals, chemical combination or dissociation is equally transient and where nothing is eternal, but eternally changing, eternally moving matter, and the laws according to which it moves and changes.
2: Indeed. (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say to that other than indeed. Right. Like.
1: No argument there. Couldn't phrase it better than they already did. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, but one thing, and we're going to talk about the Black Panther Party later, obviously. But like one thing that they were really good at was taking these texts and putting them in terminology that. For lack of better wording, that people in the ghetto understood.
1: Especially Bobby Seale.
0: Yeah, I mean Bobby Seale and Fred Hampton, man. Well, we can't we can't uh, rule out Huey Newton either, Minister right. of Defense. But again, we'll talk about that later. So Engels went on in Dialectics of Nature to say, "Motion is the mode of existence of matter." Never anywhere has there been matter without motion or motion without matter, nor can there be. Change of form of motion is always a process that takes place between at least two bodies, of which one loses a definite quantity of motion of one quality, for example, heat, while the other gains a corresponding quantity of motion or of another quality, such as mechanical motion, electricity, or chemical decomposition dialectics so-called objective dialectics prevails throughout nature and so-called subjective dialectics or dialectical thought is the only is only the reflection of the motion through opposites which asserts itself everywhere in nature and which by the continual conflict of opposites and their final passage into one another or into higher forms determines the life of nature and uh Lenin added in materialism and imperial criticism, but dialectical materialism insists on the approximate relative character of every scientific theory of the structure of matter and its properties. It insists on the absence of absolute boundaries in nature, on the transformation of moving matter from one state to another, that from our point of view may be apparently irreconcilable with it and so forth. So basically, Um, I guess to sum this up in the US uh, this this back and forth motion in our political system is, you know, the uh, the Republicans will have a president for eight years or four years or what have you, and then the Democrats will win and they'll have it for four years or eight years and they just point the blame back and forth. Um, so we, we need to figure out how to reconcile these these opposites, so to speak um or acknowledge that our point of view is completely irreconcilable with the existing state um i mean i guess that's kind of kind of what what is to be done was about um another one more quote for uh from engels rather from the end of classical german philosophy and they're they're largely referring to hegel there uh for dialectical philosophy nothing is final absolute or sacred it reveals the transitory character of everything and in everything nothing can endure it before uh, can endure before it except the uninterrupted process of becoming and of passing away of endless ascendancy from the lower to the higher an example of dialectical materialism is the materialist conception of history um the term dialectical materialism was coined by coined by Karl kautsky and popularized in the second international after the death of marx and engels um yeah so the materialist conception of history i i guess just to give a brief overview i'm not trying to dive deeply into that but uh as defined by marx this conception of history depends on our ability to expound the real process of production starting out from the material production of life itself and to comprehend the form of intercourse connected with this and created by this mode of production i.e civil society in its various stages as the basis of all history describing in it uh describing it in its action as the state and to explain to all the different theoretical products and forms of consciousness, religion, philosophy, ethics, etc., arise from it <clears throat> and trace their origins and growth from that basis. Thus the whole thing can be depicted in its totality uh, and therefore to the reciprocal action of these various sides on one another. It ha- it has not like the idealistic view of history in every period to look for a category measuring for example measuring periods of history in accordance to certain ideas but remains constantly on the real ground of history it does not explain practice from the idea but explains the formation of ideas from material practice accordingly it comes to the conclusion that all forms and products of consciousness cannot be dissolved by mental criticism by resolution into self-consciousness or transformation into apparitions specters and winds but only by the practical overthrow of the actual social relations, which give rise to the idealistic humbug, that is not criticism, but revolution is the driving force of history, also of religion, of philosophy, and all other types of theory. It shows that history does not end by being resolved into self-consciousness as spirit of the spirit, but that in it, at each stage, there there is found a material result, a sum of productive forces, and historically created relation of individuals to nature and to one another, which is handed down to each generation from its predecessor, a mass of productive forces, capital funds, and conditions, which on the one hand is indeed modified by the new generation, but on the other hand prescribes for its conditions of life and gives it a definite development or a special character. It shows that circumstances make men just as much men make circumstances. (laughs) <laughs> that's from the German ideology that's um, that's early Marx mm-hmm. so I mean I guess that just goes to show that he came into finding his own philosophical viewpoint he had a baseline like when he started writing and expanded on that from there um, obviously he also said you know philosophers always you know discuss the world or or point out problems in the world but most philosophers never actually try to change the world
1: right the the whole point of all of it is to take some action on that philosophy I mean, is great when it's discussing ideals and what well that, that that depends like nietzsche didn't try to change the world he just pointed out the bullshit. and in turn but him pointing out that bullshit did change the world. Yeah.
2: But if you go further back, like uh the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, um Epictetus, they all actively tried to bring people into their school of thought so that in turn it would change the world. Same thing, right. right. Same thing with the um the more so philosophical aspects of taoism and buddhism not the religious aspects which are still there it's just you can separate the two it's easier for western culture to separate
0: yeah um so i mean i think you're, you're getting at something important which is that society has done this in the past yeah.
2: Um, it, it but Marx
0: out. Marx I think was the only philosopher of his day that was actually putting forth a plan to change anything.
2: Yeah. And see, it worked out in the past in like in Rome and Greece because, you know, they had important people that were going to these philosophers to learn these philosophies and actively practicing them. And then when those guys stopped being in power, shit kinda went downhill.
0: Right, right, which I think is kind of like part of what Marx and Engels were trying to get at. They were trying to give a self-correcting process. Um, which I mean, that, that's why, you know, like obviously like this is the expounding of ideas, which is also funny because it's the idea that ideas don't make history um anyway so there there is that contradiction but that being said it kind of points to the contradictions in nature how they rectify themselves evolution um and essentially he was trying to spur humanity to in some ways return to nature i mean we we living in a class society for for most most people at this point is hundreds of years if not thousands um i think has taken us very far away from our natural evolution not to say that uh you know rome and greece weren't class societies they were but those are the contradictions that caused them to fall
2: i mean there's so much that caused them to fall
0: well yes but i mean ultimately it was these contradictions coming to light true and um, using lead for fucking <laughs> <every month. laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you? Well, I mean, that that has to do to with the material it, conditions, though. It's not like the ideas weren't good, right? They used to powder it down, <laughs> to sweeten their wine,
2: which is Man. interesting. It, it, it's really interesting that um, the reason that Caesar initially invaded Gaul and then attempted to invade uh germany was because those tribes stopped the importation of um of uh roman wine because they believed that it was making their people stupid for lack of a better way of wording it
1: well i mean i mean it, it was, it was <laughs> because
2: Ed fucking lead in it
1: they literally went and were like we would appreciate some unleaded <laughs> right. Kind of like how I would them. you like your wine, leaded or unleaded? Um. Right. Well, that's even how I still order uh, water any restaurant in Flint that I go to. Um, I'll take unleaded. You know, my friends that live in 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 the actual city of
2: Flint say that the water is clean now. I know this is going completely off For some people, topic. it is.
1: It For is? For some it is. Okay. Well, and, not- and, and actually, a,
0: a good majority of the city, but the problem is the underserved, poor areas that had the biggest problem to begin with still haven't been fixed. Okay. I was just, I was wondering, because I haven't
2: lived in Flint in a long time, and I mean, obviously, the friends that I have that live in Flint don't live in all of Flint. <laughs>
0: right, right, right. For what's happening in one area? Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a very fair question though, and I believe that we're still supposed to at some point. Uh, I don't know if Dean had any luck reaching out to Melissa Mayes, but we should be talking about that at some point in the future. Uh, so I guess we're gonna move on to the Black Panther party. Oh, Do you uh, have anything you want to say before we, like, start talking about this book? Um.
1: Well, I, I would just like to point out that, you know, a lot of the foundation of their ideals comes from Marxism and Maoism, and a lot of it involves dialectic materialism. Um, which is why I wanted to discuss these together today because it's a foundational concept and they are a great example to show us how to apply this to modern day issues
0: well right I mean if they can take Marxism which was developed you know by an academic in Germany uh, you know and then expounded on by a working class, revolutionary from Russia, and then expounded on by, uh, you know, a peasant from China. And that, you know, like, the point is, is that, that people have been able to take the ideas of Marx, and even, you know, Lenin and Mao, and really, like, implement them for their personal, not their personal, but like their cultural uh, material conditions. So, we're going to be talking about seize the, seize the Time, the story of the Black Panther Party by Bobby Seale. And uh, I don't know if it was ever like republished by an official like publisher. Uh, so pertaining to copyright, I'm going to read the copyright disclaimer that is in the book just under the table of contents. It says, fuck copyright. Feel free to mirror this book, print it out, quote parts of it, or better yet, act upon it. Yep.
1: Yeah. Good looking out, Bobby.
0: Good looking out, Bobby. Exactly. Um do you have the Yes you do. In the chat, uh the top link, the first one that I sent is the book.
2: I already have that
0: link open on my screen. Stand by. Oh no. So, <clears throat> I'm going to go into uh, uh there was a couple of things that are right in the beginning that I want to we're gonna be kind of jumping around this because obviously we can't, um, we can't necessarily just do it all in one sitting. There's no way, it's a 234 page book. Um, so I wanted to start with the publisher's note. It says, uh, this book derives from tape recordings made by Bobby Seal in the early autumn of 1968 and the autumn and winter of 1969 and 1970. The first series was made with the cooperation of the editors of Ramparts Magazine. The second series was made in the San Francisco County Jail. Art Goldberg, formerly, formerly an editor of Ramparts, was responsible for the editing of the transcribes ta- transcribed tapes. However, Mr. Seal supervised the preparation of the final manuscript and every word is his. Um, and then they give a little intro to uh, Huey Newton um there's a lot of use of the n-word throughout this book i will be excluding it um the black panther party kind of started the push to reclaim that word and i am not going to try to say that they can't use it but i'm not going to huey p newton minister of defense in the black panther party the baddest motherfucker ever to set foot in history huey p newton the brother black man the descendant of slaves who stood up in the heart of the ghetto at night in alleys, confronted by racist pigs with guns and said, my name is Huey P. Newton. I'm the Minister of Defense of the Black Panther Party. I'm standing on my constitutional rights. I'm not going to allow you to brutalize me. I'm going to stop you from brutalizing my people. You got your gun, pig, I got mine. If you shoot at me, I'm shooting back. Just to give a little backstory into Huey Newton is. Do me a favor, what page is that on? That is on page three. It's uh page... the top. Yep. It's the uh it's before the start of the first chapter. Ah, third. Yeah. It's uh and then I'm gonna get into the foreword because there's there's some important things I think in here too. There are a lot of misconceptions about the Black Panther Party. <laughs> uh, that's why I wanted to talk about this book, and that's why Bobby Seal wrote it. I wanted to write this book so people could have better insight into the inner workings of the party so that people would have a more true understanding of the Black Panther Party. What it really does, the kind of people who are in it, their everyday lives, and the things that have happened to the party. Many things about us that appear in mass media are distortions. In addition, the demagogic politicians have lied about the party and have lied about who the real enemy is. But here are the facts. A picture of what the Black Panther black panther party really is and how it operates this book shows the chronological development of our party and how it grew out of the social evils of an unjust oppressive system it also shows that repression is a natural product of this wealthy technological society owned and controlled by a small minority of the people many things about us that appear in the mass media graves if they could uh graves if they could see lumpenproletarian Afro-Americans putting together the the ideology of the Black Panther Party. Both Marx and Lenin used to say the lumpen proletariat wouldn't do anything for the revolution. But today, in a modern highly technological society with its CIA, FBI, electronic surveillance, and cops armed and equipped for overkill, here are Black Americans demanding our constitutional rights and demanding that our basic desires and needs be fulfilled. Thus becoming the vanguard of a revolution, despite all attempts to totally wipe us out. Hold We're on. No- Go ahead. Not much sounds different from today, man. Right. Right. How fucking long ago was this? Uh, this book was written between 1968
2: and 1970. Okay, it's 2021. Yep. That sounds everything he mentions in the second sentence of the third paragraph of the foreword sounds like modern america
0: yeah and i mean uh for those of you who don't know what the lumpen proletariat are uh marx and Lenin both talked about them they are considered the criminal underclass the black panther party unlike marx Lenin, and mao actually reached out to the lumpen proletariat meaning street gangs they were organizing street gangs to distribute food in their communities i'm just fucking saying right <laughs> <laughs> um we
1: got something better for you to do get this food
0: out <laughs> right and i mean they they were they were eager to do so in most cases and that being said it did lead to some alliances between the black panther party and street gangs that would be used by the media to um, demonize them. To demonize them, exactly. But when, they're Americans too, goddammit.
1: Wait a minute. These street gangs are doing some good shit for their community, but no.
0: Right. <laughs> he went on to say uh, we're not the vanguard because we wanted to be, but because it was given to us through the blood and death of our members, and because nearly 100 of us are political prisoners at the present time. So I see this book as the work of our leader and Minister of Defense, Huey P. Newton, and of uh apprentice quote, Bunchy Carter, Bobby Hutton, John Huggins, Fred Hampton, Mark Clark, and all of our brothers who have been murdered, and of political prisoners like Erica Huggins, Langdon Williams, Rory Heith and the Panther 21 in New York, the Panther 14 in Connecticut, of political exiles like uh, Eldridge and Kathleen Cleaver, and all the dedicated Black Panther Party members functioning throughout the country. Uh, The life and existence of the Black Panther Party, the ideology of the party in motion is a biography of oppressed America, black and white, that no news report, no TV documentary, book or magazine has yet expressed. To do so, the media will let, would let the people know what's really going on, how things have happened, and how we're struggling for our freedom. So before the power structure, through its pigs, attempts to murder any more of us, or take more political pr- prisoners in its age-old attempt to keep us, as they like to say, in our place, I have put together the true story of the Black Panther Party um it goes on to who he dedicates the book to but essentially his revolutionary brothers i'm uh i'm gonna continue into chapter one now does any does anybody else have anything they want to throw in
2: no nothing at all no i just i just want to reiterate
1: bobby seal (laughs) (laughs) that's fair That's (laughs) That's <laughs> fair. I'm
0: gonna follow Bobby Seale, come on now. Oh man, uh, but I, I just want to point out one more time that the the, the importance of them reaching out to the proletariat. They were kind of written off by previous revolutionary Marxist movements, and uh, it was believed that that was the best course of action, but I think that the Black Panther Party does a really compelling job uh, of showing us that it doesn't have to be that way. If we're lifting up everybody, we're lifting up the lumpen proletariat. Do you mean to tell me that they want to be criminals? No, they want a better life.
1: Lumpen proletariat.
0: Exactly. So this is a little, uh, a little bit of a autobiography about uh, Bobby Seal. And he actually uses his birth name towards the end of it. Or, no, never mind. That's referring to his son. My bad. Anyway, when Malcolm Malcolm X was killed in 1965, I ran down the street. I went to my mother's house, and I got six loose red bricks from the garden. I got to the corner and broke the motherfuckers in half. I wanted to have the most shots that I could have. This very same day, Malcolm was killed. Every time I saw a patty roll by in a car... I picked up one of the half bricks and threw it at the motherfuckers. I threw, it, I threw about half the bricks, and then I cried like a baby. I was righteously crying. I was pissed off and mad. Every patty I'd see, whop. I'd throw a brick, and it would hit the cars. And zoom, they're driving down the street, and I'm throwing bricks for a motherfucker. I thought that was all I could do. I was ready to die that day. Kenny Freeman and the rest of the cultural nationalists came down there to get me, and I told them to leave me alone. I said, get away, you, and words oh, are co-
2: word. I'm reading ahead and I don't know that we're going to be able to read the next part of this. Let's
1: replace it with motherfucker.
0: Okay. But he uses motherfucker a lot. It's got to be something that he doesn't use.
1: Cat. You cats are crazy. Okay, now you're just sounding like the fucking FBI when they were writing those pamphlets pretending to be coming from the Black Panther. Yeah.
0: I'm sorry, dude. I just... Um, I got mad and I busted a window in the house. I put my fist through a window. I told them all, fuck it. I'll make my own self into a motherfucking Malcolm X and if they want to kill me, they'll have to kill me. That was a big change with me and they never understood that. Uh, Eldred says Malcolm X had an impact on everybody like that. Malcolm X had that impact on me. Uh, When my wife already had a baby boy, I said the N-word's name is Malik Nkrumah Stagoli Seal. I probably butchered that, and I hope I didn't. Um, and I see what you're, I see what you're getting at, Don, because Stagoli was a, a bad N-word off the block and didn't take shit from nobody. All you had to do was organize him, like Malcolm X, make him politically conscious. All we have to do is organize a state, like he attempted to do. Uh, he was a bad motherfucker and Malcolm X was a bad N-word. Huey P. Newton showed me the N-word on the block was 10 motherfuckers when politically educated and if you got them organized. Man, that, see, I can uh, see, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't just replace it with motherfucker.
1: Right, I, I see, yeah, what you mean there, but there's, there's so many motherfuckers. But hey.
0: Uh I related to Huey P. Newton because Huey was fighting N-words on the block. He was an N-word that came along and incorporated Nakamax, incorporated Stagoli, and incorporated Nakruma. All of them. Um so basically he was uh born in Dallas in 1936. Um he grew up with a brother, a sister, a cousin. Uh and a lot of things, a lot of things affected the way he saw things. Um, obviously, I skipped part of the book because that was kind of the idea, anyway. Um, but I think it's important to, to to take a look at what his childhood was like. Um, you know, he he talks about how he was raised like the average black man, like a brother in the black community. And I know that none of us talking about this right now. Wholly understand what that's like. I mean, we have a bit of a picture from the outside, but this is from his perspective, and I think that's important. Um, the farthest back I can remember is when I was unjustly whopped by my father. I can never forget that. My uh, father and mother were having an argument. I, suppo- I was supposed to be washing some shit in the back, or some shirt in the backyard of a house we had in San Antonio. I was the oldest of three children, was about six years old. I remember very vividly that i was playing in the back and how my father told me to get the wash base and put some water in it in it and wash his shirt i tried to wash his shirt but i guess i started playing he was arguing with my mother and it had something to do with that shirt my father came outside and was mad at me because i hadn't finished the shirt he took his belt off and really beat me he went back inside the house and argued again with my mother i was crying when he came back and beat me again my mother came out and stopped him and snatched the strap away but he got it back from her and argued with her. Then he pushed her and beat me again. He told me to wash that shirt. I never forgot that beating. I never had because it was an unjust beating. The argument he was having with my mother was directly related to him taking it out on me, and that's not right. My father was a carpenter in Port Arthur, Texas. My mother had left him a couple of times, and one time when they got back together, he built a house up from the ground. My father was a master carpenter. That's where I learned my carpentry work. I learned drafting in school, but I knew basic building structure just from being around my father. He taught it to me and my brother uh, off and on while we were growing up. I grew up just like every or any other brother. We didn't always have money. During the war we had a little money, but after my father built the house, he went to San Antonio and then we were back in poverty again. It was still wartime, and there was some money around, but I remember that whenever my mother and father rented a house, they would rent half out to some other people, like a whole family. <clears throat> I think the first time I really began to oppose things that I saw was when we were at Cardonese's village. That's probably wrong. Uh, the government housing project in Berkeley. People were living in poverty and semi-poverty. We lived in very crowded conditions with my mother's twin sister and her son. The, pla- the place was always dirty. My mother always tried to save money, but the money was used up every time my father was laid off. He wasn't able to get in the union at that time later he and three other guys were the only black cats in the carpenter's union in all of california we lived in poverty mostly because of my father's eighth grade education his father used to be rough on him my father was a lot rougher on me in certain periods of my life just like his father was rough on him his father used to beat him and one day my father left and wouldn't work for his father anymore i pulled the same thing One day I stopped and wouldn't work for my father anymore because he wouldn't pay me. At that time I didn't know what the word exploitation meant, but that's exactly what it was. And I rejected it and I opposed it. My mother never really had any money. When I was 13, I used to make money on my own, hauling groceries and cutting lawns. It wasn't always profitable, but sometimes I could make a dollar or two here and there. Me and a couple of brothers I used to run around with. I ran around uh, with a couple of gangs in my younger days when I was 14, 15, 16 so he's co- he's coming of age I guess you know like at, towards the end of World War II um you know and, and, and they lived in poverty pretty much his whole upbringing um so he ended up going to uh, Merritt College um he, he didn't. Uh, he OK, so I actually I skipped a paragraph. Well, I skipped a couple, but I was trying to skip ahead. But anyway, uh, by the time I turned 16, I was more opposed to society and the injustices and bad things in it. But I wasn't very articulate about it and learning history. I picked up on things that have been done wrong. And I, I began to find out about the American Indian, how rotten he'd been treated when I met Steve Brumfield. He was about a, young, a month younger than I am, and he's dead now. He killed, himself, uh, the, he killed himself, they say. We were opposed to the white man for taking the land away from the Indians, and we identified with the Indians because our parents had Indian in them. We didn't know about Africa yet. It was very easy for me to identify with Africa when I got to Merritt College. I had gotten rid of the stereotype notion of American Indians when I was 16 years old. So the Afro-American Association started talking about identifying. It was easy for me to grasp it and get rid of the Tarzan notion of Africa. That's a good way to word it. Holy shit. Right.
1: Okay. Um,
0: but we, we kind of see what his upbringing was like. And his political awakening happened when he networked in college. Um, which is also important. And I think we should do, as you said earlier, Trisha, I think that we should... Uh, include this in our Revolutionary left Book Club. Yes. Um, so we can go more in depth on the whole damn thing rather than just bits and pieces.
1: Right. Like here, we're focusing on just the parts that relate to dialectical materialism and how that was brought into action. But there's so much more here that I would love to delve into.
0: And the reason I started with kind of his uh, start... Uh, his early life is because his, his direct material conditions influenced um, his
1: uh, political standings.
0: Yes. Um, and ultimately, well, I'm, I'm skipping ahead to when Huey Newton and Bobby seal met at Merrick Merrick college, because pretty much they met and uh, that fire ignited. That fire ignited. Yeah. That's a good way to word it. Brother Huey P. Newton put the Black Panther Party into motion. Brother Huey is the Minister of Defense and the leader of the Black Panther Party. He is presently a political prisoner, but he is still the philosophical theoretician, the practitioner, the head director, and top official spokesman for the Black Panther Party. It is impossible to talk about the Black Panther Party without first talking about Huey P. Newton, because Brother Huey put it all into motion. We sometimes talk about the genius of Huey P. Newton. I met Huey Newton in the early 60s during the Cuban blockade when there were numerous street rallies going on around Merritt Junior College in West Oakland. One particular day, there was a lot of discussion about black people and the the blockade against Cuba. People were out in front of the college and the streets grouped in bunches of 200, 250, what have you. Huey was holding down a crowd of about 250, and I was one of the participants. After he held the conversation uh, down to what in those days they called shooting everybody down, That means wrapping off information and throwing facts. Uh, People would ask Huey a question or refer to something he said. They tried to shoot Huey down by citing some passage in a book concerning the subject matter being discussed. And uh, and before they knew it, Huey whipped out a copy of Black Bourgeoisie by E. Franklin Frazier and showed him what page, what paragraph, and corrected the person. Hell yeah. (laughs) That's fucking great. (laughs)
1: Fuck yeah.
0: Oh man. Um,
1: Thank you. Let me wake you up. I'm
0: actually. uh,
1: What page are you on? Because we just scrolled through a couple of pages and couldn't find where you had jumped forward to.
0: Huey was a large influence on the whole campus. I got to know where Huey was on campus. I wasn't a running partner of Huey's then, but I was catching him on the streets. We would all wig out behind Brother Huey, and I guess everybody respected Huey's mind and also Huey's guts. He had something about him, that he didn't drive over people, but he would never let anyone drive over him, especially in a violent and rowdy fashion because I didn't know it at the time, but I learned later Huey had a kind of hidden reputation on the block with the brothers. There were cats all over East and West Oakland who had reputations for being bad and they were known throughout the community for being bad. Uh, Huey didn't have this kind of reputation. The bad cats terrorized the community and Huey terrorized the bad cats. You heard a lot of stories about Huey like one night at a party Huey accidentally stepped on some brother's shoes and Huey stepped back and said excuse me brother uh the brother he was bad one of those bad dudes said motherfucker excuse me don't reshine my shoes Huey knew his brothers very well when the dude slid back to the side and dropped his arm slightly slightly to the right hanging behind his right thigh Huey saw this he knew this was the time to fire next thing you know Huey fired on him and decked him and uh all the other bad dudes at the party who were this deck dude's friends or partners wanted to show who this cat thinks he is. And so they they jumped up and said that Huey needs his ass kicked. And Huey told them, I'll fight all of you at one, or one at a time or all of you at the same time. And you won't wait outside for me. I'll be waiting outside for you. And then he walked outside and waited and dared them to come outside. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that's that's epic, frankly. (laughs) <laughs> um, and this In is something I. What was that, Don? I. Continue.
2: Yep. go.
1: Do this. What? Oh. <laughs> He's telling you to go ahead because all he Oh said well, was, I mean, but it froze.
0: All I said was, "He was a bad motherfucker." Ah, yeah, and this is something I think Huey understood too, that he would shock them because he was as bad as the noted dudes in the area. He shocked them because he had nerve enough to fight all of them. They would come outside and think they could get around him or start sneaking around him to try and deck him, and the next thing you know, Huey would come out with a 14 or 15-inch machete, and he'd be righteously trying to whip heads and cut up some ass. Hell oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, I love it. Huey also used to get into fights with his partners who rode in his car with him. At the time, he was coming out of high school and was around sixteen or seventeen years old. He had a car called the Gray Roach. Huey always hit a corner, his car speeding down the road. Once he turned the corner and a block up, there was a railroad crossing with a little red light swinging, signaling that a train was coming. There was also a big, big building right on the corner that you couldn't see around. Huey starts speeding up. He didn't know exactly where that train was, but he knew it was around that building somewhere. Next thing he knew, Huey had driven straight over that crossing, and all the dudes in the car were cussing him out. He tried to tell them he couldn't die. He said he didn't believe he could die. And why die a thousand times when you can only die once? Oh yeah. Wow. So, I mean, it sounds like he had a little bit of a death wish, you know.
1: Um, either that or just defiance of death.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a better way to put it, honestly.
1: Luck was on his side on
0: many occasions, and probably a lot of skill. So now I'm going to go ahead and uh, skip to... Uh, we're going to skip quite a bit this time, actually. Uh, but I do want to give a brief ov- overview of what I'm skipping. Uh, but the, uh, the time came when Huey Newton broke with the cultural nationalists. And I mean, that, I think that's an important move, um, but I, that's kind of a lot to dive into right now. Um, the sole students in the advisory council, um, I guess actually that's where we'll pick up. What page is that on the doc? Uh, page 17. Roger. I had been running with some cultural nationalists for around two or three years, the so-called West Underground RAM, a revolutionary action movement. I got very frustrated with those cats. I didn't think they were gonna do anything and I became very discouraged about being able to work with them. They had a lot of paranoid hang-ups, and they began to accuse me of things. They had so many bullcrap suspicions, I couldn't deal with them. I broke loose from those cats. I got mad at them one night and busted down their door. All the N-words hid behind their own damn beds. At that point, I couldn't deal with them anymore because they, w- they wouldn't defend themselves against even me. There were four or five of them in the pad, but they ran hide- hiding. I, didn't just, I just didn't respect them anymore. I was thinking to myself, later for these dudes, I'm going to find myself a righteous partner to righteously run with. I really hadn't seen Huey for over a year now. One night, I was just sitting on the street in front of James Oliver's house, about a half a block up the street from Merritt College, and Huey came by. I didn't know who it was at first. I was sitting there in the car drinking a beer or something, and Huey flashed a little flashlight through the window. I think he recognized my car. I had seen him walking down the street a couple of times, but I think he knew that I had that car. Uh, I said, what's happening, man? I said to myself, now this is who I ought to be in running with. Um, I wanted Huey to be a part of the same national, cultural nationalist group I'd been running with, and these dudes didn't like Huey to be a part of their organization. At first, I couldn't figure out why, but I remember I had, uh, I had asked Huey to come up to the pad, and after he left, silly-ass Kenneth Freeman sat up and said some bullcrap about Huey P. Newton comes from a bourgeois family. Huey P. Newton was raised righteously on the block, and of course, Kenny Freeman was the one who came from the bougie family. He was also saying, the dude's high, man. I said, well, what's the difference? He gets a little loaded off of something and I drink whiskey. As I think about it, I don't think Kenny Freeman liked us feel the N-words too much. I don't think he dug us at all. Because he knew Huey was the type of dude who didn't take no shit. And I figured he had a little egotistical bourgeois fear about Huey kicking motherfuckers' asses in the way Huey articulates things. Huey came walking up that night with that flashlight, and I said, this is who I need to be running with, old, old brother Huey. That brother can righteously run it down and don't take no shit from nobody. This brother will stand with you, and this is the way I felt about the brother, knowing him for those years that I'd been knowing him, about four or five by then. <clears throat> I started talking to the brother about the struggle, and I think he must have recognized that I was well frustrated with those cultural nationalists, the so-called underground R.A.M., one day I went over to his house and I asked him if he had read Fannin. I'd read Wretched of the Earth six times. I knew Fannin was right and I knew he was running it down. But how do you put, you, how do you put ideas like his over? Huey was laying up in bed thinking and plotting. I knew what he was doing. He used to tell me he was plotting to make himself some money on the man. He was involved with day-to-day survival like the average brother on the block. He said no, he hadn't read Fannin. So I brought Fannin over one day. Uh, that brother got to reading it. And man, let me tell you, when Huey got a hold of Fanon and read it, I, I had always been running down about how we need this organization, that organization, but never anything concrete. He would be thinking hard. We would sit down with Wretched of the Earth and talk go over another section or another chapter, and Huey would explain it in depth. It was the first time I had ever met anybody who could show a clear-cut perception of what, it se- or what was said in one sentence or a paragraph or a chapter and not have to read it again. He already knew it. He'd get on the streets. We'd be walking down the street and getting some discussion with somebody, and throughout the process of this discussion and argument, Hewitt would be citing facts, citing that material and giving perception to it. At that time, he was given the same basic concepts as he's given now, but he's in a wider and broader area, because he's had a lot of experience in leadership in the Black Panther Party. His development now is at the head of uh, revolutionary struggle, but he always had this vast ability to do things along with the proper perspective and he could run it down and get things going. Which, I mean, frankly, that's important. I guess what what he's saying in long form here is that Huey Newton was a doer. He was a very action-oriented person.
1: Right. he also knew what to say to inspire the people around him to action.
0: Right. Um, Huey was one for implementing things, and I guess this is where the Black Panther Party really got started. <clears throat> because once Huey got hung on that, he started explaining how he had to get something going. Before the Black, Ma- uh, Black Panther Party came, the uh, Seoul student- Students Advisory Council... Some of the other cultural nationalists in the college and a couple that I'd broken up with and got tired of messing with, they were jiving to me and are still jiving. Some of them came around. Uh, they were talking about starting some organization, a school campus organization. Well, Hugh and I, Huey and I got interested in the thing and a couple of other cats, Virtual Morell and Alex Papillion. We started talking about organizing what we named a little while later, uh, Soul Students Advisory Council. We structured the thing in such a way where we really practiced ultra-democracy among ourselves. At the same time, Huey wanted to make the thing very meaningful. So the so-called central group of the Soul Students Advisory Council consisted of Virtual Mur- Murrell, Alex Papillion, Bobby Seal, Huey Newton, Isaac Moore, and a couple of jive cultural nationalists around here. Huey and I decided we were going to try and make the thing work to develop a college campus group and to help develop leadership, to go to the black community and serve the black community in a revolutionary fashion. I was with Huey all the way. Frankly, so had I, just saying. Um, Actually serving the community is what it's all about. So, uh, Soul Students was moving along and meanwhile, Huey and I and Alex Papillion and Virtual Murrell put out a lot of hard, hard, hard work into getting a few things off the ground. The draft of black men was a big thing on college campuses. Of course, just the draft itself became a high controversy. But we had just begun talking about the draft of black men. We organized one of the biggest rallies ever held at Merritt College, where five or six hundred black people attended and ran it down. From there, Huey, Virtual, Alex, and myself were known as the leaders of the Soul Students Advisory Council. Uh, Huey and I and Weasel, one of the brothers at the campus, were all sitting in the car one night. We decided to buy some records by T-Bone Walker, Lightning Hopkins, and Howlin' Wolf, these down-home brothers. I suggested that we go up to the Cal campus because up there, up around there, they have more LPs of T-Bone Walker, Howlin' Wolf, and all their brothers than they have in the regular black record shop. We started walking down the street on Telegraph toward the Forum, a restaurant up there. We were, we were about a block away from the Forum when the brothers asked me to recite one of them poems I always liked. One of them was Burn, Baby, Burn. The other was Uncle Sammy, Call Me Full of Lucifer. I was walking down the next street. Uh, I was walking down the street reciting Burn, Baby, Burn all the way down until we got to the next block. And then Huey and Weasel asked me to recite that other poem Uncle Sammy, Call Me a Full of Lucifer. So I got to reciting that poem. I said two or three words, and we got in front of the forum across the street. One of the brothers, Weasel, got over and picked a chair up. It's kind of a sidewalk restaurant. He said, here, Bob, you stand on this. So we set a chair up by the curb there, and I got on the chair and hollered, Uncle Sammy, call me fellow Lucifer. When I said that, I went on to recite the rest of the poem. Then someone said, do it again. Run it, around, run it down again, man. So I got to the part of the poem where it says, you school my naive heart to sing red, white, and blue uh, stars and stripes song. Some uniformed pig cop walked up. He stood probably 10 or 12 feet away. I said, you school my naive heart to sling, or to sing red, white, and blue stars and stripes, songs, and to pledge eternal allegiance to all things blue, true, blue-eyed blonde, blonde-haired, white chalk, white skin, with USA tattooed all over. Man, when I said that, this cop walks up and says, you're under arrest. I got out off the chair and said, what are you talking about, you're under arrest? Under arrest for what? What reason do you have for saying that I'm under arrest? And he says, you're black on the sidewalk. <laughs> Doesn't that sound familiar? Uh And I say, what do you mean I'm blocking the sidewalk? I'm standing over here. I notice Huey standing to my left. Next thing I know, some people start grabbing on me. You're under arrest. You're under arrest. I start snatching away from them, man. Next thing I know, Huey was battling up there and three patties had me down, tied down to the ground. One of the patties that had a hold of me, Huey knocked him in the head a couple of times. And a couple of other brothers and stomped on the patties. I got loose. A big fight was going on. But boy, they say Huey whipped up some motherfuckers in there. They say Huey was throwing hands. That's why I say Huey or his partners. He always went down with them. It's just one of them things. He just relates it to any brothers he's with. He doesn't let anybody mess over his partners or whoever he's running with. That's the way he is. <clears throat> um, they got busted that night. Uh, I, I skipped the rest of that paragraph. Huey and I got busted that night. I fooled around and got busted a block away from the thing. Since we were leaders of the Soul Students Advisory Council at the time, and Huey and I had to have a lawyer, uh, Virtual Murrell went to the SSAC Treasury, got 50 bucks, gave us $20, or $25 a piece to secure ourselves lawyers after we got bailed out. It took us three days to get Huey bailed out of jail. He was on probation, and at his first uh, probation officer put a hold on him but later cut the hold loose. Oh, wow. Three weeks after Huey was bailed out, some brother got busted right in front of our car. Huey was getting ready to jump to vamp on the pigs because he knew the brother wasn't doing a thing. He was a citizen just standing around observing about 10 or 12 feet away from our car. The cops went up to him and wanted to bust him for nothing. Huey said, we've got some money in the SSAC treasury. We're going to bail this brother out. So I'm going to skip down to We Hit the Streets. That's the next chapter. It starts on the same page.
2: See it. Got it. Actually, do you want to read for a minute? I am actually... My food's being delivered. Um,
1: Can we pause for the because They're here right now.
0: I fucking told you. <laughs> so... um before we get into we, we hit the streets, I, I, I just want to say that uh, as we're getting into this, we wanted to hit some like base points in the organization of the Black Panther Party, which we thought that we would be able to, you know, give you a short overview of and then talk about how dialectical materialism ties into the Black Panther Party. But <laughs> um, <laughs> this is kind of becoming its own thing and it's going to need multiple episodes. So If you're interested in uh, hearing more from Seize the Time or about the Black Panther Party or about how that relates to dialectical materialism or the mass line or, um, you know. You ran out of words, huh? Yeah, Yeah, I ran out of words.
1: (laughs) This has now become part one of a series because there is so much here to unpack. It's important to understand
0: exactly like even though we wanted this to be about specifically dialectical materialism there's too much that we can't skip to give context to the parts that do pertain <laughs> to dialectical materialism this is kind of giving us a view into how they were raised what kind of people they were and all of that's pretty damn important given the context
1: right it's it's literally showing you how they grew into Having these political perspectives due to experience, and that's important. We can't skip over those important parts that directly relate to why they held these ideals about dialectical materialism so strongly in their beliefs and practices, which are the fundamentals of mutual aid at this point. Yeah. Where it began. So it's very important to see how this became like in the states anyways, of addressing the need for mutual aid because of a lack of the materialism being met as far as what's needed to survive in the world. So, anyway.
0: Yeah, if, uh, if, uh, if uh, the material conditions of a society or of a, a chunk of society aren't being met, they're going to meet them one way or another.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> via mutual aid, via calling for better socialism programs as far as you know, actually helping support the community because we only excel and are able to move upward by lifting each other up together.
0: Yep, exactly. And uh, all of that ties into what the Black Panthers were doing. And well, I mean, in some areas still do a lot of the social programs aren't, you know, like packed with volunteers anymore. They don't have the free clinics anymore, but they're still there and they're still organizing and they still matter. And I would say that without the Black Panther Party before them, the movement for black lives would wouldn't have had a starting point in terms of um, direction, I guess.
1: They draw. They draw very
0: heavily from the from the original Black Panther party.
1: Absolutely, Just when it comes down to it, we're discussing human rights, plain and simple. Whether it be the material conditions not being met or other facets of oppression, we are talking about human rights.
0: Well, yeah, a big part of it was, um, you know, like. Americans are supposed to have the right to bear arms, but, you know, when the Black Panther Party started carrying guns and policing the police, the government got a little butthurt about it.
1: Right. California
0: was- passed their first uh, gun control laws in direct response to the Black Panther Party arming themselves. But people say it's the left that wants to ban guns. That's kind of funny.
1: Actually, it's the centrists. Yep. Fair. Neoliberal centrists um, they're the ones calling for banning of guns. So just a reminder that when you go further left, and you actually find yourself on the left. You get your guns back. Indeed. Oh shit.
0: Don, you have any uh, takeaways or comments or political parties are the bane of human existence.
1: And organized religion—that's a whole different. thing and
2: dogma, dogma, dogma. Dogma.
1: That's another rabbit hole we'll delve down that Not layer. the
2: movie. The movie Dogma is great. Right. Fucking amazing movie. I love every aspect of it. Kevin Smith, if somehow you're listening to this, love you, buddy.
1: Oh love my God. you. You're amazing.
2: <laughs> National treasure. Anyway,
0: anyway I'm sorry. It's all
1: <laughs> Yeah, you're good.
0: So... We're going to pick it back up uh, at We Hit the Streets, and we're probably going to cut this segment um, after the discussion about this chapter. Because, uh, like we were saying, there's just way too much to try to unpack in one segment here. We thought we could do it, but then when we started diving into it, we realized it was that there was nothing really that we could skip and still have context. So... A short while later, we had a meeting of the SSAC involving about 200 people who were very concerned about where the SSAC was going. The cultural nationalists had spread it all uh, around all over the campus that we were doing the council wrong. They accused us of stealing money from the treasury. In fact, money wasn't stolen. It was being used for bail and to secure lawyers for me and Huey. The cultural nationalists also accused us of accepting money from a white man. We got the money from Bob Shear, a former Ramparts editor who was running for uh, Congress. Shear had come up and asked us for support, and we said we didn't feel it was necessary to support anybody in the political arena because we didn't think they could voice our opinions adequately. We asked Shear for $100, which he gave us. There weren't any strings attached to the money. We just said we need $100 to help get things off the ground here at Merritt College. But we felt We knew what we wanted to do because Huey had already run it down to the central group of the SSAC that we had to arm ourselves. This was way before the Black Panther Party, maybe 11 months before. Huey had run it down to Douglas Allen, to Isaac Moore, to Kenny Freeman, and to Ernest Allen, that what we needed to do was to involve the Black community. Um, And I'm just going to, like, chime in here. Involve the Black community. Um, And... This is obviously put in in more everyday wording, but what they were trying to do is build a mass line. Um, they were trying to to really build dual power in the way that Mao was talking about but we'll get to that later because that that wasn't the direction that they took it until later. Um, Huey understood the meaning of what F- uh, Fannin was saying about organizing the lump and proletariat first, because Fanon explicitly pointed out that if you didn't organize the lump and proletariat, if the organization didn't relate to the lump and proletariat and give it a base for organizing, the brother who's pimping, the brother who's hustling, the unemployed, the downtrodden, the brother who's robbing banks, who's not politically conscious, that's what lump and proletariat means. That if you didn't relate to these cats, the power structure would organize these cats against you. Huey said to all these cats on the central committee of the SSAC that we are going to have to show the brothers on the block that we have an organization that represents the community and we're going to have to show it in a real strong fashion. So Huey suggested to the central group that we bring these brothers off the block openly armed onto the campus and bring the press down. We would reach the community because the press would be hungry for it and show them on Malcolm X's birthday May 19th that Malcolm X had advocated armed self-defense against the racist power structure and show the racist white power structure that we intend to use the guns to defend our people. All these cultural nationalists, these underground R.A.M. bastards, all of them, were scared and rejected it. And I even have to say that virtual Mural wasn't hot on it. Even Alex Papillion wasn't too hot on it. The only people hanging on to it were Huey P. Newton leading it, and me following Huey P. Newton, because I dug Brother Huey, because I felt I knew what the hell he was talking about. Because at this time, he was explaining to me that you implement through practice, not just through a bunch of words, what Phantom was talking about. And right. And again, I want to chime in here to reiterate uh, <coughs> that you implement practice, or you implement through practice, not just through a bunch of words. Um, and that that's been a long-standing thing in most communist parties is that you actually have to do the things you're talking about not just talk about it And I mean that being said, I think that we're all a little guilty of that everybody involved in this call and everybody watching it we're all guilty of this but the the thing is is we don't have a Huey Newton to rally around and I mean that being said I I, I would prefer that there wasn't leaders that they could target and take out. Um, but that being said, that's that's what we need is a real direction. And I think that that's what the, the broader left is missing right now. <clears throat> um, Huey was running down that the law says that every man has the right to arm himself by the Second Amendment of the Jai Constitution of the United States. He says that we are going to exhaust that because in the end, the men will say that we don't have a Second Amendment. That's very important to understand. So when Huey said, let's exhaust it now, he meant relate specifically to what Malcolm X was thinking. Don't relate to the personality of Malcolm so much and relate more to what Malcolm X was saying to do. This is what Huey was trying to implement within the confines of the soul students quite a while before the Black Black Panther Party got started. All these guys rejected it. Douglas Allen, the rest of them, they were scared. They were shook. Um, Huey defined them as a bunch of scared cowards. This is when we really, really began to pick our bone with these cultural nationalist cats in the SSAC. <clears throat> they accused us of stealing money and then rejected this idea about the guns and arming people. They started accusing us and they were trying to act bad on the campus like they were back like they were bad dudes off the block. You get these cultural nationalists that think they're bad. They're better than anybody else. So Huey says, if they think they're bad, we're gonna get our shit. I had a nine millimeter pistol and Huey called up his boys, the pimps, the thugs off the block. Uh, it says in parentheses, people always call them thugs. And he called up his nephew, who, like the brothers on the block, just like to fight. They don't like to do much of anything but fight. And they liked Huey, and they respected Huey's ideas. So we stacked a whole session there. That whole last day's session, that was the day Huey and I resigned from the SSAC with the brothers off the block. And Huey said, come on up here. These N-words think they're bad. We're going to show them if they're bad. We came off in there and we had guns and sweaters and shit. Um, Buddy boy was there with a couple of his boys and one of Huey's nephews with his nine or 10 brothers off the block and some more of his cousins. We were going to kick ass that day. But the cultural nationalists slotted off and got pissed off because we were scared and got pissed off and scared because they knew we meant business. Huey was in the back room and I was up there standing around 10 or 12 feet from Isaac Moore. He was talking about telling me to sit down. I told him, "You come over here and make me sit down," because I knew I had a nine millimeter for his ass. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. I love
1: that. Just, I knew I had a nine millimeter for his
0: ass. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's so matter of fact. <laughs> I, I, you can tell that these were transcribed from a tape, and I, and I actually really admire that. Like, it's a lot more real than most reading, you know.
2: Right, karate not Reading ahead, bro. Yeah, I just did too. <laughs> Isaac
0: Moore was supposed to know a little bit of karate, but if he got acting bad, I was just going to prove to the N-word that karate don't judo chop buckshots and pistol bullets.
1: <laughs> right? <laughs>
2: yeah. Listen, listen, something to know about karate. Gun beats karate every time. Yeah. Yeah. Gun beats karate every time.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially from 10 or 12 feet. You know, if it was like five feet, the reaction time could be a variable, but...
1: Well, I mean, if it was five feet or less, there's also slight possibility you might have opportunity to disarm somebody, but you better hope they don't have skills to match yours when it comes to hand-to-hand combat.
0: Well, yeah, fair.
1: And I'm betting he had that too to back that <laughs> what, nine millimeter up. <laughs> Just saying. Like, yeah, you don't bring karate to a gunfight. <laughs> all
0: right, continue anyway. on. Uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm skipping a paragraph. It says, they talked all that shit about us stealing money and swayed the jive college intellectuals to think that we were stealing money. We told the fuckers we weren't stealing money and that we took the money and bailed out one brother. And uh, Virtual mural said, I took 50 bucks and I gave 25 to Huey Newton and 25 to Bobby Seale to secure themselves a lawyer for that shit that happened up on Telegraph. The cultural nationalists have their minds so fucked up in the system and in pawn to the system that they couldn't believe it. They didn't want to believe it. They wanted to be treacherous and chicken shit uh, like the power structure with their minds in pawn to the system. That's how they have a tendency to project themselves. So Huey and I jumped up and said, well, fuck it. We resign. We're going to the black community and we intend to organize in the black community and organize an an organization to lead the black liberation struggle. Huey ran all that down to them. We don't have time for you. You're driving in these colleges, you're hiding behind the ivory wall towers in the college and you're shucking and you're driving. So he left and said later for the punks job motherfuckers at the college. We just went to the streets where we should have been in the first place. Those four or five years that preceded this showed us that and Huey, the brother off the block had never really left the streets at all. When we decided to go to the streets, it was based basically on one thing, that Huey Newton was ready to go to the streets. Before Huey decided to leave college, he had wanted to implement things there and educate those on the college level to the necessity of bringing the brothers off the block to the college level and relating those college skills to the streets. This was Huey's objective because he saw the necessity of this happening. But at the same time, Huey also realized that if the college boys didn't want to come onto the streets, uh, later for them. And that's how it happened. The college boys, the cultural nationalists, all the bullshit jiving dudes who articulate bullshit all the time and don't ever want to get into the real practice of revolutionary struggle, you know, the black liberation struggle in this country. Huey would say, well, later for them, we'll go to the streets. And I'd say, Huey, I'm with you, brother. Let's go on and do it. So we went out of the streets and that was it.
1: Fuck yeah.
0: <clears throat> um, and I'm going to skip one more paragraph. This is very important. This is the difference. The line of demarcation. In fact, between the revolutionaries and those who were driving in the confines of the ivory walls, the ivory towers of college, Huey and I began to talk about a lot of things. We really began to get very intense in how this thing was going to go and how we thought it should go. We had been rejected by the people at san francisco state Merritt college and on the berkeley campus because we talked and emphasized the necessity of arming the people with guns the cultural nationalists and many of the leading white liberals they look at it like you can't pick up guns it's impossible to pick up guns this is what they want to emphasize this is what you can infer from all of the rhetoric but huey said no you must pick up guns because guns are key Or to put that in the words of Chairman Mao, "Political barrel or political barrel, political power grows from the barrel of a gun."
2: Or in the words of Stan Smith, "Penknife mightier than the gun, sword gun (laughs) mightier than the penknife." God
0: damn it! So this is where we're going to cut uh, where we're going to cut this segment. And the next the next piece, honestly, is really where we're going to start tying in dialectical materialism. But um, I do want to point out that Huey Newton looked at the situation around them, a.k.a. the material conditions, and realized that they needed to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, they stuck oh. by that, and that's
1: There's only one way to defend yourself against motherfuckers with weapons.
0: With weapons. And, uh, you know, once they broke from these, these nationalists and the white liberals, they became a revolutionary movement. Um, And and like, you know, now they, they're getting into the next chapter is going to be using the poverty program. And that's really where they start trying to improve the material conditions of their people. And that's really where I think dialectical materialism is going to really come in, in this work. Um, So, you know, just if, if you want to look ahead, it's going to be page 23 on the PDF. Um, But I'm excited for this mini series, honestly. I'm glad that we decided to do it that way instead of trying to cram it into one episode. Yeah. There's just too much here. And like, As
2: weird as this gun, this is gonna sound coming from some fucking hillbilly that lives up in northern Michigan. This makes so much. This is so much easier for me to read than fucking Mao.
0: I believe that makes
2: sense to me. I can understand this. I mean, I can understand Mao. I, I don't get me wrong. I'm smarter than I let on, but like, it's so much easier for me to process than how than Mao's vocation.
0: Well, yeah, and I mean, so I had to do a lot of pertaining to the Little Red Book. I had to do quite a bit of of research into what China was like under Japanese imperialist rule and, um, you know, as its own culture before that to kind of get context of why they were doing things the way they were doing things. Ultimately, they were taking the science of Marxism and the direction of Lenin to make it fit chinese society and that's why it doesn't necessarily resonate with us as well yeah yeah but this this is america this is this america
1: it this is like (laughs) the things that they're describing remind
0: me of growing up in flint yeah well i mean let's not forget that there were black panthers in flint yeah of course there are Black (laughs) panthers in flint there was there was there was I don't and know. At some point,
2: there could It's Schrödinger's Black Panthers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, I, I thought that joke yeah. had been
2: done to death.
1: No. Maybe. Well, maybe. It was
0: classy, though.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but no, you're absolutely right. This is a lot easier to relate to. And that's because it happened here. It happened. Well, not in our lifetimes necessarily, but our parents' lifetimes. No, 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 no. It it not only happened
2: here,
1: it happens
2: here. Well, yes. It has
1: continued to happen here.
2: Yeah, this sounds like modern America. Yeah.
1: The issues that they were already needing to address at that point in time, we're still trying to address now. You, You know, there's... Some areas where we've made some improvement of a step here and a step there, but these are still the same, um, issues facing that society is facing rather, um, that we are still trying to, to deal with when we have child poverty and hunger still happening. Um, you know, a a lack of access to housing. Um, these, these are issues that are still pertinent today. This is very much. Relatable, you know, content here. Or like I feel it. I, I know what they're talking
0: about. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that.
2: I have something I want to end the recording on. So, let me know when we're about to
0: end it, so I can. Well, I mean, we gotta we gotta plug ourselves, right? Yeah, of course. We are Wearemety.org. <laughs> Facebook.com/slash we for We Are Many podcast, YouTube.com/slash/For We Are Many podcasts. and everybody's favorite Patreon.com/slash/For We Are Many podcasts
2: uh, Elon. Elon, Elon, buddy. What you don't see on my screen? Well, you probably see it on my screen, my dude. Let's be real. But as <laughs> you can see right now, I am checking Robinhood.com. I'm checking to see if. Dogecoin's making me any money. It's not making me any money. Your stocks are costing me money. Pull your weight. Donate to our cause. Be one of us.
0: Um, Also, I think I'm gonna make this a habit for a while. uh, But one of the things that I would like to say at the end of our segments for a while is solidarity with the people of Palestine.
2: Rob, put your fist up. They can all see us. Or will in the future. Wow, we look pale.
0: Yeah, your lighting lighting has shifted. I think it's because the sun is going down or something. Ew! Yeah, so you're not nearly as pale now. Now you're like white and blue.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's peach and pink and blue. White people don't really exist. You're either peach or pink.
2: Or Enjoy apparently
0: that. blue.
1: <laughs> That's just the lighting. It, it's. I mean, isn't any
0: color just the lighting? <laughs>
1: yeah. Really? Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, fair uh, enough. One last thing before we go. Remember, kids, only you can combat fascism.
1: Always punch Nazi.
0: Always. And for my uh, comrades of color or my trans comrades, your existence is in many ways threatened every single day. And I encourage you heavily to take the advice of Bobby Seale and Huey Newton and Fred Hampton and arm yourself. Be able to defend yourself at any time.
1: Get trained on those firearms too. Yeah, please. Make sure both- you are well-practiced, comfortable, and confident and know when and when not to.
2: Support. Yeah, yeah. For the love of whatever god or multiple gods you believe in or refuse for, to believe in.
1: For the love of yourself. For the, for love, the love of, of everyone get, around you. Just training. Yes. Be well practiced. That way you can confidently use that if need be.
0: If you're worried about, you know, toxic right-wing gun, gun culture, don't worry. You're not alone. There are organizations such as the Redneck Revolt, the John Brown Gug Club, and the Socialist Rifle Association that are all comrades that are more than willing to help you learn and familiarize yourself with your firearms, as well as how to properly use it, take care of it. Yep. Oh, fuck yeah. Plug it. The a hole in That's the end of my plugging.
1: All right. Solidarity. Solidarity. You can find our butt plugs on the dark web at where we are many podcasts. Not done plugging.